The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Tuesday episode of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. So check this out. When when you told me about this, and I looked into the file about the Chicago Ripper. Yeah, the Chicago Ripper crew. I started looking, and I swear to God, they look like a, like the... Uh-huh. They, they look like the great value uh, version of the Bee Gees, is what they look oh, like. Oh, there's some more, because you said that one has a time on mustache. Oh, totally, man. Yeah, just wait until I get further into it. Oh, is he a Chimo? Uh, no. Oh, just has a stash, right? Yeah. Looks like he's ready to start doing staying alive and shit. Yeah. Groovy. Ah, All right. So, so you. Take it away, because okay. I want to get this shit done with. Okay, so anyway, I'm kind of doing this backwards, because I started researching this one after I did the Friday episode. So just a couple of days ago, I researched a case of Isisagawa, who we're going to cover on Friday. He was known as Pang, or the Kobe Cannibal. Now, as I was going through the articles and reports on his crimes, I was flooded with emotions that centered around morbid curiosity, disgust, and outrage. Um, I barely had time to process the horrors that he committed when I started reading some of the articles on this one. They mentioned that this case had aspects of the occult associated with it. However, from articles I have done in the past, I've learned that the concept of satanic serial killers, and I'm quoting here, you know, quote marks, because has been debunked as a myth. Don't get me wrong. There are such things as cults. There's even satanic cults or Satan worshipers. There are also some that practice ritualistic sacrifices as part of their doctrine. However, when it comes to satanic serial killers, there are two kinds. The first type are those that believe they are commanded by Satan to commit murder. They don't necessarily practice rituals associated with the cult, and most don't even practice Satanism as a rule. A prime example of a serial killer that falls into that category is Richard Trenton Chase. Remember him? I do. The vampire Sacramento. He believed that he was told to murder people by Satan so that he could consume their blood to stay alive. Now, the second type are those that use Satan in the occult as an excuse to commit murder. They have adopted symbols of the occult and maintain that they are killing people in an effort to commune with Satan the way a devout Christian communes with God through good deeds and prayer. One particular serial killer stands out as a prime example for this category, which is Richard Ramirez. According to reports on his case, he thought he was Satan's private ambassador on Earth, that if he committed the murders in the name of Satan, then he would be granted special protections and a higher standing with Satan upon death. Therefore, as I was reading the article, articles about the four members of the Chicago Ripper crew and how they claimed they performed satanic rituals when they killed their victims, I actually said to myself, here we go again. The four men I'm going to tell you about today are Robin Gicht, Edward Spritzer, Andrew Cocorales, and his brother Thomas. Now, even though, even after going through dozens upon dozens of articles, I will say from the beginning that I do not believe for one moment that their murders were committed in an effort for them to commune with Satan. In fact, I believe that at least one of them is, was a true sexual sadist, and he managed to convince the other three men to follow his lead. However, before I get too far, let me present you with this case. Um, on June 1st, 1981... On the outskirts of Chicago, Illinois, in Villa Park, three police detectives drove through the rain on their way to a, it's, it's actually called the Moonlit Hotel. And you'll find some other names in the here that are fucking funnier than fuck. I'd love to stay at them. 
They were responding to a call that said a dead body had been found there. The hotel was situated in one of the more seedy areas of the subdivision. Since it was surrounded by rundown shops, questionable fast food joints, and shady bars, its clientele were what one would consider what one would cons- not consider to be upstanding citizens. Um, I didn't put the word "not" in there. Um, so hang on here. I you just did, not did it all put the cap. word "not." You not nodded. I not nodded. Um, anyways, Joe. Joe who? Joe Mama. The only one. In fact, it wasn't a well-kept secret that it wasn't a well-kept secret that addicts would go there to score and the rooms could be rented by the hour. We're going to score. Yeah. (laughs) Scott's perfect place. One of the women who cleaned the rooms at the hotel had noticed a foul odor in the vicinity a few days before. You were there? No. Fuck off. Oh, I just thought maybe you were there and they had I was only six. I'm pretty sure that you smelt foul at six, too. Yeah. She didn't think much about it until it progressively got worse. The woman finally told the motel manager about it, and he assumed it was just a dead animal lying somewhere in the litter-filled field that bordered the property. When he found the source of the odor, he was shocked to discover it wasn't a dead animal, but a dead woman. One written account of the murder spree gave a grisly description of what the man found. Damn, that's a waste of a perfectly good white girl. Yeah, the remains consisted... Actually, she was black. Oh, that's, a, that's a waste of a perfectly good black girl. Is that better? That's... Okay, whatever. <laughs> Large, the remains consisted largely of bones and some clinging flesh. Yeah, that's how they described it. He ran straight back to the hotel, motel and called the authorities. Shortly after the detectives arrived on the scene and took one look at the body, they realized that she had been lying out in that field for quite some time. The remains were in such an advanced stage of decomposition that her bones were exposed, which means almost all of her flesh was gone. So she got a bone and then became bone. Okay, no, I'm I'm, I'm with you. However, they also noticed that there was still quite a bit of maggot activity, which isn't very common in terms of what they usually see post-mortem. Usually the high volume of maggot activity is due to a significant amount of decaying flesh still present on the corpse. But since she didn't have very much of that, they were like, why is there still a bunch of maggot activity? Upon further inspection, the detectives were also quickly able to determine that the woman had, in fact, been murdered. There were a pair of handcuffs binding her wrists together, which they were assuming were placed on her anti-mortem. Someone had also felt the need to gag her because there was a piece of cloth stuck in her mouth. Probably because she kept on yapping like a lot of women do. And, yes, Your Honor, that's why I shot her. <laughs> I love pissing you off. I know. It's my she, favorite hobby. She, I know it is. You told that to my best friend this week. It's my favorite thing to do in the whole world. <laughs> she wasn't naked, as her remains still had on socks, a pair of panties, and a sweater. Her underwear had been pulled down around her thighs, which indicated she may have been sexually assaulted as well. Tucked into one of her socks was a small bundle of bills. Therefore, the detective also surmised that robbery wasn't the suspect's primary motive. The the detectives on the scene knew the first thing they had to do was determine the identity. Once they were able to do that, they would have a better chance of figuring out how long she had been dead before her body was discovered in the middle of the field. However, the stage of decomposition with the remains were that the remains were in would make that a difficult task. 
The early 80s was a time in judicial history before there was an institution established in Knoxville, Tennessee, known as the Body Farm, which I would love to visit, by the way. If the farm was available to them at that time, they would have an easier time to determine her time of death. In fact, prior to the farm being established, the only people who would be able to offer a more definitive time frame were experts trained in the field of entomology, which is a real word, and it's the study of insects and their activity. Otherwise, it was all unscientific guessing. Investigators also had to set about trying to determine if the field where the remains had been discovered was also the primary crime scene or a secondary one. In other words, was she murdered there or did somebody just dump her there? Considering the detectives had just received the call about the body, there was also a slight possibility the remains had been in another location before the suspect placed them in the field. If that was the case, they were looking for someone who could handle being around decaying remains long enough to transfer them to that location. They knew that if they had to, they could gather samples of the soil, um, which would determine the volume of body fluids that had saturated the ground. However, rather than continue standing there, they decided to get the body to the deputy corner. Once they were signed over to the custody of the deputy, um, he performed the autopsy, deputy corner, excuse me, he performed the autopsy. And the reason why I'm skipping his name is because it's kind of hard. It's Pete Seichman. Um... Shut up. That's an awesome name. That's a gay name. Yeah, kind of. It's a porn name. That is totally a porn name right there. <laughs> yeah. While he was doing that, he would collect any fingerprints that are available and take dental impressions. The detectives returned to the station to go over missing persons reports. And when those efforts proved fruitless, they placed a call to the Chicago Police Department. That's how they found out that the woman was most likely a prostitute because they were known to roll their money and place it in their socks for sh- safekeeping. That's what I do. Okay. They also (laughs) have to have money. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm so broke, I can't pay attention. They also lucked out with the coroner's report. He was actually lift some prints from the corpse. Those and the dental impressions helped make an identification. They hadn't waited more than two weeks before they established that she was 21-year-old Linda Sutton. Um, This case is going to piss you off, though. They didn't have a set victimology, Scott. They killed everybody from every race age group, everything. No, I'm happy about that. You want to know why? Because then they weren't basic? Yeah, they're not basic. They're creative. I like Mm -hmm. that. So when the detectives ran her name through the system, they discovered that the lead they had received from CPD penned out. She was a known prostitute. She also had an arrest record. They also learned that she had two children, and at the time they were living at her mother's house. Um, However, his segment's report revealed one more twist they weren't expecting. Even though the remains were in an advanced stage of decomp, he surmised that she had only been dead for approximately three days before her body was discovered. How fuck that happened? Yeah, the re- I'll tell you. The reason why the level of decomp was so high, they were significantly sized wounds on her chest. In fact, both of her breasts had been completely removed, which allowed for insects Damn. to invade the inner portion of the corpse which in turn accelerated the process of decay. He also reported that in addition to being subjected to mutilation, Linda had also suffered a brutal assault. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before the detectives also found out that she wouldn't be the only victim. Um, the next victim was 35-year-old cocktail waitress reported missing approximately eight months later on February 12, 1982. It appeared as if she had been abducted from her vehicle. As they processed the car, they noticed that the gas gauge was on E, 
from what they surmised, she would most likely ran out of gas and was trying to find some help when she was taken. The keys were still in the ignition and her purse was lying out in the open. When they searched the area around where the vehicle was, they found her naked body. It was next to the road lying on an embankment. Since the remains weren't in an advanced stage of decomp, they were able to determine that her killer had tortured and mutilated her. The autopsy later determined that she had also been raped. As with Linda, the victim was also missing her breasts. Almost reminds you of, um, what, what's his name here in Oregon? Oh my God. Why can't I think of his name? The fetish killer. I can't remember. Oh, my God. I can't remember his name. Me neither. And I know we covered him. Yeah. For some reason, I keep wanting to say Joel Rifkin, but I know it wasn't no, that's, him. That's, that's New York. Yeah. Uh, actually, it, it's... Brutus. Jerome Brutus. Yeah. But it sounds more like um, William Bonin, but straight. Like not oh, yeah. Kind of. Because he uh, he emasculated him. Right. So that's, that's just yeah. what it sounds like to me. It's like, it's like a straight version of William Bonin. Because Bonin worked right. with several people, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And Kraft did, too, a little bit. No, Kraft just worked by himself. Uh, no, but didn't... Oh, yeah, he worked by... I thought you said uh, mutilated their No, bodies. mutilated, yeah. Yeah, Kraft emasculated a couple of his victims, too. Right, right. While but, they were alive. But Bonin not only emasculated and tortured and you know mutilated right. the bodies and things like that, he also worked with... Uh, well, there was James Monroe. Yeah, Moreau, there was four of them. And the there was... Uh, uh, damn it. It just... I know. I, they're escaping uh, me too. Yeah, that, it just slipped my mind. But yeah, he had. Uh, so yeah, that's just kind of what this is reminding me of. Is like, yeah, a little bit. And it's it's around the same era because Bonin was from the eighties as well. Yeah, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. So yeah, in California. But in California, and mm-hmm. they're in Chicago. So yeah, it's it's got a lot of similarities. Right. So when the authorities released the information about the murder to the press, they actually asked them not to report the woman's breasts had been removed. Law enforcement officials want to keep that information confidential because you know they always hold back some facts. In the event that they brought in a suspect for interrogation, they'd have something that only the killer would know. It was only a matter of a couple days after that when a third body was discovered. This victim was a young woman of Hispanic descent wearing only an engagement band. According to the autopsy report, she had been sexually assaulted and her cause of death was the result of being strangled. My question is what she was doing so far north of the border. Is Chicago really that far north? Yeah. Do you not own a map? Isn't it Oklahoma? Oh, no. Texas, Oklahoma. Shut up. It's in the Midwest. That's all I know. Jesus Christ. You know what? I don't know my geography as well as I should. But you have Google. Yeah, well, what the fuck ever. Uh, where, where are these? I come yeah. from the era when we had encyclopedias. Hey, Chicago Ripper Crew, I got another one for you. It's a Sasquatch. It's a little different for y'all, but. Anyways. Right here. This victim's breast had not been cut off of her chest. However, the coroner reported that there were several severe bite marks on them. Not I like only that. that, there was seminal fluid covering her body which the authorities believed was the result of her attacker masturbating over her. What's wrong with that? Some chicks are into that. Not when they're dead. How do you know? Have you been dead and masturbated over? (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I know that... You don't know everything about me, Scott. I know my son Jake likes it when guys masturbate over him, but... (laughs) My poor kid, I give him so much shit. But he also, he also likes making sweet love to you. So. No, no, he does not. What are you, you're, 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. He didn't say it was guys. He said it was Sasquatches. Hey, you just have to admit it, man. You guys have sweet love together, and that's fine. No, that's fine. No, we do not. You just, you're only saying that because you don't want me to hook up with your mom. I'm only saying that because it's true. We do not have sex. Whatever. Dude, he's only Se- 19. I'm not a fucking lovers. cradle robber. I'm not a cougar. No, you're a squatch. That's bigger than a cougar. The sad part is, is I typically only date older men. Um, Back in 1903. <laughs> preliminary psychiatric profile was provided to law enforcement agencies in the Chicago metro area. So officers would have a general assessment of the perpetrator. <laughs> okay. That profile predicted the following information about the attacker. He was a man local to the metro area, more than likely had a family and loved animals, and there was a darker side to him that others had not seen. Under the cover of darkness, the dark side manifested into a cruel, psychopathic murderer. After taking approximately three months to cool down, the perpetrator struck again. This time, the victim was Lorraine Borowski. Lori Ann to her family. She was crossing the parking lot of the Remax agency where she worked alone one day when she was abducted. Her remains were later found dumped in the vicinity of where Linda's body was discovered. However, rather than being dumped in an open field, her body was placed in the Clarendon Hills Cemetery. Although one of the reports stated this, when I read the information... Oh, none of the reports stated this. When I read the information on where her body was discovered, in my opinion, the killer and or killers were taunting the authorities. During the autopsy, the medical examiner determined that Lori had been sexually assaulted multiple times. At some point during her attack, someone took a wire garrote and used it to slice her breasts from her body. Then finally, whoever it was used a hatchet to kill her. This time, the unknown killer didn't take very long before he struck again. Approximately two weeks after Lori was abducted on May 29th, there was another victim. Her name was Shui Mock. She was be- Shui. She was being driven home by her brother after they had worked a shift at the family's restaurant in Streamwood. And at some point during the trip, she and her brother got into a heated argument. Which I feel so bad for her brother because of how this happened. Um, Shui's brother pulled off to the side of the road and she got out of the vehicle. He assumed that they had some relatives close behind following them that would pick her up as they drove by. That was the last time anybody saw her alive. Her remains were found buried at a construction site sometime toward the end of August that same year. When the coroner performed the autopsy, he reported that her body had been subject to similar mutilations. The authorities in the Chicago metro area had made a grim determination that they had a serial killer on the loose. They had several victims turn up and they all seemed to have an obvious link. All of them were young women and every one of them either had their breasts amputated or mutilated in some fashion. No matter who they talked to or where they conducted their investigation, they never managed to find any true credible leads. They were almost to the point of realizing they might not ever have any solid leads when it appeared as if they might catch a break. They had another victim turn up. This time, though, she was alive. In June of 1982, a young woman named Angel York reported that she had been abducted by two men. Here you go, Scott. Remember Chimo Stash? Anyways, two men in a red Dodge cargo van. <laughs> they, they had a Chimo van. She claimed that... Um, She was just one of many that had been handcuffed inside the vehicle 
while the men raped and tortured them. According to her statements, during the attack, the kidnappers made her cut her own breast using a large knife. And when she did as she was told, one of the men, quote, was driven into a frenzy. At that point, he grabbed the knife and sliced around her breast some more before he couldn't control himself. He exposed his genitals and started masturbating until he ejaculated in the open wound. Then he grabbed some duct tape, tore off a strip, and covered the wound with it. That... All that happened right before they pulled the van over and just dumped her in the middle of the street. Um, They'd left her for dead, but thankfully she survived. Although it seemed like Angel was able to give them a good description of the van the two men were driving, that's about all she could provide in regards of who her attackers were. She said that she never got a good look at their faces, so the authorities at least knew they were looking for at least two men in a red Dodge van. Unfortunately, it turned out that the information that Angel provided to law enforcement officials in the Chicago area was too little too late. They struck again in August. This time, the victim was 18-year-old Sandra Delaware. Her body was found lying along the banks of the Chicago River. Sandra's killer had used a shoelace to bind her wrist behind her back. It also looked like they had removed her breasts the same way they had with most of the other victims, with a wire garage. There was a bra wrapped around her throat and knotted, and the medical examiner on the scene estimated that she had only been dead for approximately six hours before her body had been discovered. Although all the murders had been tragic, this one hit some of the officers on the scene a bit harder. Even though she was 18 years old, to them she was just a kid. However, she had also, was also a known prostitute. They surmised that it was... That is what made her susceptible to her attacker or attackers. But even then, she didn't deserve what had happened to her. None of the victims did. Less than two weeks after Sandra's body was found, on December, uh, excuse me, on September 8th, another victim was found. This time it was 30-year-old marketing executive named Rose Beck Davis. See, notice they're not even all prostitutes. Um... And her remains were discovered behind a stairway of an apartment building in North Lake Shore. When the authorities arrived at the crime scene, they noticed that Rose's clothes were disheveled and tied around her neck was a black sock. Tube sock killer. <laughs> the killer had crushed her. I know you do. <laughs> the killer had crushed her face with what was later determined to be a hatchet. During the autopsy, the medical had found... Examiner found deep lacerations on her breasts, but there were also numerous small puncture wounds all over her abdomen. He also determined that she had been sexually assaulted and her cause of death was listed as strangulation. And those puncture wounds are going to be significant later, and you'll find out why. Then there was the pitcher's wife. Three days later, 42-year-old Carol Ann Pappas was reported missing on September 11, 1982. She was the wife of Milt Pappas, who was a former MLB pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. The last time she was seen alive was earlier that day in Bloomington at a shopping center. At the time, the authorities also issued a bolo for her burgundy and white 1980 Buick Regal. When Carol was reported missing, the authorities weren't sure whether it was random or she was one of the many victims. After several tips didn't pan out, a young man confessed to being responsible. According to him, he kidnapped and murdered her. However, when the authorities investigated this claim, they didn't find any evidence to corroborate his confession. Now, I pulled dozens of reports and articles. I mean, I mean dozens. 
from that time, and I wasn't able to find out who made the confession or when it occurred. Therefore, it could very well have been a member of the Chicago Ripper crew. When none of the initial leads the authorities received panned out, someone consulted a local psychic. Police Chief Carl Dobbs stated that she wasn't much help either. All she could tell them at the time was Carol's body would be found underwater. She wasn't able to tell them where this body of water was located. However, I do have an updated side note. Um, her Carol's remains were actually found on August 7, 1987. Some workers were draining water from a pond near the fire department to work on the shoreline. And that's when they discovered a vehicle had been submerged in the shallow waters. The location of the pond was approximately four blocks from Carol's house where she lived with her husband and young son. After the vehicle was recovered from the muddy water, the coroner confirmed the identity with dental records. He also reported that there was actually no evidence of foul play. Due to the positioning of the vehicle in the pond, Chief Dobbs stated that Carol was likely on her way home when the accident occurred. And from the reports I found, it was assumed that she was traveling at a great speed when she veered off the road through a grousy patch of turf and ended up in the water. Um... The coroner did not believe anyone else was involved in the accident, not even another vehicle. He also surmised that she was alive when she entered the water. And there was a bottle of pills found in the vehicle as well. Although the authorities didn't confirm what kind of medication it was, it it assumed that they were the pain pills she had been prescribed the day before after dental surgery. So they believed that she, like, took too many of them. I hate when I have to take an emergency trip to the bathroom and I hear you recording. Tears me up because I hear about Chimo vans. Chimo vans and tube sock killers. The tube sock killers. I hate you because I still think the tube sock killer thing was freaking stupid. <laughs> Only because of the name, right? Who the fuck leaves behind a tube sock as their, as their signature? I know. on Because it wasn't used to kill him. Yeah. It's dumb. Yeah. After Rose's body was found and Kara was still thought to be a victim of the killer stalking the streets of Chicago... The detectives called on the FBI for help. They contacted Robert Ressler, you know, the guy who's famous for heading up the B, the, well, it was BSU back then, but it's BAU now, and asked him to work up a profile. He stated that the man who attacked Rose was more likely confused about his sexual identity. In fact, he might even identify as bisexual and have effeminate, effeminate qualities in regards to his looks and mannerisms, which that kind of profile is also a little significant when you get into it later, too. In October 1982, a 20-year-old prostitute named Beverly Washington was abducted and brutally raped. During the attack, her kidnappers mutilated her body and dumped her on the side of the road, intending for her just to bleed out and die. However, she was able to find help and get to the hospital in time to survive. She would be the one to give the authorities the break they were looking for in the case. According to her statement, she was approached by a white man with a slender build and looked like he was in his mid-20s. His hair was brown and greasy-looking. And he also had a mustache. Ha ha. She said that he was also wearing a pair of square-toed boots and a flannel shirt. Okay? When the Beverly told the man what she wanted to be paid for the services he was requesting, she said that he actually offered her more money and asked her to get in the back of the van with him. As she climbed in, she noticed he had a gun. He demanded that she remove all her clothes, and since she didn't know if he would actually use the gun, she quickly did as she was told. Once she was naked, the man handcuffed her wrist and forced her to perform oral sex on him. After that, he held out a handful of pills and ordered her to take them. 
She believed that he would get even more violent, so again, she did as she was told. As she was passing out from whatever he gave her, she noticed that he was standing over her with a cord of some kind in his hands. And as she lost consciousness, she said her last thought was that he was going to kill her. Apparently, the man dumped her in a pile of trash, fully intending for her to die there. However, someone found her in time to call for help. An ambulance arrived and rushed her to the hospital where it was discovered that one of her breasts had been completely removed and the other one was partially removed. With her injuries, chances were that if she hadn't been found when she was, she would have succumbed to to him and died. She would have bled out. When the detectives asked her questions about the van the man had been driving, she said it was red and had tinted windows. She also told them that on the inside of the van was a wooden divider. And hanging from the rear mirror, she noticed, there were some feathers and a roach clip. Remember back in the day when we'd hang those? On like our visor or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The details that Beverly gave the authorities proved to be very useful. The time frame of when this next part occurred is debatable. Some reports indicate that the red van was pulled over by the police at a routine traffic stop on October 20th. However, I found another report that said it was October 5th, and yet another said that it was November 7th. Those are kind of very wide ranges. The officers that pulled the van over noticed that it fit the description of the van that Beverly gave to the detectives, right down to the roach clip. However, when they approached the driver, they noticed he had red hair and didn't fit the description of Beverly's attacker. When they asked for his name, he said it was Eddie Spritzer. He also told them that the van wasn't his. It belonged to Robin Gick, his boss. The officers told Spritzer to drive the van to Gick's house and they would follow. Once they were at the house, they told him to call his friend outside. They were just hoping he fit the description of the guy we were looking for. Then they saw him coming out the front door and they didn't have to look twice to know that he was the one who attacked Beverly. Especially since he was wearing the same shirt and boots. And probably had a neon sign that says, I'm your dude. I'm a chimo. No. <laughs> a little chimo Yeah. According to the reports I read, when he came outside and walked up to Spritzer and the officers, he was completely calm. He even offered to help them any way he could. They figured he was either completely innocent and it was all a misunderstanding, or he was an arrogant psychopath who thought he was untouchable. I would say he was more of a sociopath, but okay. Frame, frame, frame. I was framed. He wasn't Richie fucking Valens. He was framed. (laughs) Beverly was shown a photo lineup with his picture among them, and she didn't hesitate to point him out as her attacker. When the authorities went to question him again, he had lawyered up. He had drawn the proverbial line in the sand, and they knew that he was going to take every precaution possible in the interactions he had with them. In fact, it didn't take long for them to realize it wasn't going to be easy to rattle him either. The detectives did, however, find out some very uh, interesting information about him that might shed a little light on his motives. He had, shall we say, interesting connection to another notorious individual from the same area that had just been arrested three years before. Then again, several serious criminals have come from Chicago. Um, Let's see. H.H. Holmes, number one, you know, who was considered the most fiendish killers in history of American crime. Which I kind of want to feature him because there's a twist to his story that I never thought possible. Um... Then he wasn't the only one. There was William Hirons, a local teenager who we will get into because I really I have him on my list. 
He murdered three people before he left a message for the authorities. It was written on a mirror in red lipstick, and it read, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Um, he became known as Lipstick Killer, and we'll be featuring his case sometime soon. In December 1979, the police in Des Plaines, Illinois, know what I'm going to talk about? Iowa. No, Des Plaines, Illinois. Oh, uh, Des no, what? You don't know who was arrested in Des Plaines, Illinois? Was it Gacy? Yes! Okay, I had to think for a minute. Yeah, the man happened to be a prominent business owner named John Wayne Gacy, and the authorities found out rather quickly he had many, shall we say, buried secrets. <laughs> um, he was framed, too. Yeah. Gacy dressed up as Pogo, the fun-loving clown, and performed for children who were in the hospital. Now, people who get this confused, he never dressed as a clown and targeted children. He dressed as a clown for fun and targeted young adult, uh, young adult males, like late like teens. Me. You are not young, aren't you? Forty? I don't know. Fifty nine now? No, I like young males. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of do. <laughs> You're wrong. I know. Um, he was also known for throwing huge block parties. What people didn't know until it was too late was he also liked to take young men to his house, where he would sexually assault them and murder them. Which, by the way, he's still living with his mother, so that's kind of gross. I don't sexually assault the young men I'm with. No, you... Well, I just murdered them. No, I'm kidding. Jake, did she sexually assault you? Fuck you <laughs> both. <laughs> yes, he does. The authorities found 28 of his victims buried under his house in a crawl space. When neighbors questioned the foul odor, he said it was septic issues. When the crawl space was filled up, he began disposing his victims in the Des Plaines River. His case splashed headlines, pun intended, all over the nation as people were fascinated by the man who killed approximately 33 young men from the Chicago area. He was eventually found guilty of first-degree murder, which resulted in him receiving the death penalty. However, there were times when Gacy claimed he was innocent. In fact, see, he was framed. He tried to place blame for the murders on some of the men he employed through his contracting business. Little bastards. It just so happens that one of the men Gacy tried to pin the murders on was Robin Gett. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I'm telling you, Gacy was framed. We, we, we just solved the Gacy murders. Yeah, I know. Well, my whole thing is, is why would he go from assaulting and murdering young men to women? Hey, man, if he, Robin he, really did do it. He likes variety. He likes variety. Yeah, he didn't have a set victimology, so maybe. So, hang on. Am I almost? Yeah, I'm almost done. Um, uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Now, approximately two weeks after Beverly Washington positively identified him as her attacker, Angel York, the other survivor, positively identified his van as the one that had been used to abduct her. At that time, the authorities thought that Spritzer and Geck had committed a minimum of three similar attacks. A short time later, they discovered the truth, and it was very... It was way more than they ever anticipated. Now that they had detectives... After Beverly had positively identified him, and Angel's statement said his red van was the one used to abduct her, they took both him and Spritzer in for questioning. In the beginning, it appeared as if they weren't going to get any information out of either of them. However, after the detectives questioned Spritzer for a while, they got the impression that he was truly petrified of Get. They used that fear to their advantage until they finally got him to crack, and when he was finished, 
giving his statement. It was 78 pages thick. 78. So thick. You know what? At least it wasn't six tons of evidence. True. <laughs> you know, because Charles cheating. <laughs> no cheating now. Stop cheating. <laughs> Dude, we are going to go to hell. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Hey, but he'll be there, so there you go. Then I can make <laughs> in-jokes, cheating in-jokes all the time. All the time, and that'll be his torture. Much like you, you'll be hanging out with me. That's your torture. Dude, then I'm in hell on earth. <laughs> hey, you know what? Just remember, your mom said she's going to miss me a lot. She said she's going to miss you when she's... She said, I'm going to miss him when I'm gone. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, you know. So surprised I gave the detectives every gory detail of the crimes he and Get had committed. He started by telling them he was driving the red van while Get carried out a drive-by shooting. That incident left one man dead and another man paralyzed from the gunshot wounds. The two men were known drug dealers, and the deceased was the only male victim of the Chicago Ripper crew. After Spicer told the detectives about the drive-by, he claimed he took Get out to a out to pick up an African American prostitute because Get said, "I want to go pick up this black chick." Literally, that's exactly what he told him. So, according to the reports, Get and the prostitute had sex, and when he was finished, he took the woman into a nearby alley where he cut off her left breast with a knife and had, and then he had it in the back of the van. He said that after Gek removed the woman's breast, he just casually laid it on the floor of the van. The detective said that when Spicer was giving them the most gory details, he was visibly shaken. He even told them that he didn't like, quote, all the blood. However, he did say that there were several incidents when after Gek had removed the women's, the victim's breast, he had sex with it right then and there. Nice. He used it to masturbate. Oh, what's wrong with that? Which I find kind of, I don't understand because from what I've heard, a woman's breast is just like fatty tissue that doesn't really cling inside there when it's off. I don't know. I've never chopped off anybody's boobs. Yeah, me neither. But, you know, that's what I've heard. Sorry, I took a puff, because every once in a while I think you're going to talk more, and you don't. Nope, I'm staying quiet. Yeah, he went into great detail about how he saw Gek shoot another African-American woman in the head. Once she was dead, he wrapped chains around her body and attached bowling balls to her corpse before dumping it in the river. He indicated that he didn't think that woman had ever been found. He also told uh, Jennifer Furio, she was the author of the serial killer letters, that he stood by and watched as Gek beat a woman using a hammer. However, in the same letter referring to the same incident, he said that he was so sickened by what his friend had done that he became physically ill and vomited. He also told her about how he had removed the breast from one of the other women himself. He went into details about how he assumed she was dead but didn't check to make sure before he sliced both breasts from her body. He said that after he had them removed, Gek forced him to have sexual intercourse with the fresh wounds on the corpse. So he's the one that had masturbated all over that woman. Hold on, I'm masturbating over here thinking about it. You're fucking disgusting. Now, what's downright frustrating is after they were done interrogating him, they had information on seven murders and at least one red battery. In fact, his interrogators claimed they were truly shaken by the aberrant nature of the acts. However, they also thought they could use the information to have leverage when they interrogated Get. They gathered up all the victim photographs on file and spread them out on the table in front of the man. He barely glanced at them, which tells you sociopath, right? 
Or maybe it is more psychopath. He barely glanced at them when he looked up and said that he didn't know any of them. He didn't seem to be affected by the gruesome images displayed in the pictures. When that didn't work, they led him to another room where he had a view of Spritzer pointing out something out to a couple of other detectives. However, that didn't even shake him. His attitude was one of complete indifference. A man with no secrets and nothing to hide. Here's the thing, though. I actually admire that. Let me tell you why. Because everybody else in that situation oh my God, yeah. would freak the fuck out. He already knows his fate is sealed. And he's like, hey... You know what? Prove it. I can sit here and I can bitch, I can complain, I can freak out. It's not going to change the circumstances. The only thing that I have going for me is you need to prove your case. Yeah. And if you can, if you can prove your case, then hey, I already know what's going to happen. But if you can't, there's a chance you can't. Right. Well, yeah. I'm going to walk free. So yeah. the ball's in your court, dickhead. Oh, hey, it gets better. Part two will be even better. So since Bryce had already confessed... To everything him and Gex had done, his attitude was downright frustrating to the authorities. They didn't know what they could do to break his steel reserve. When they placed Gek in the area where he and Spritzer could see each other, it affected Spritzer in an odd way. He had sudden change in his attitude, and he altered his story, claiming that Gek hadn't killed or harmed anyone. And the detectives talking to him got the distinct impression that he was scared to death of the other man. His stories became so erratic that law enforcement officials didn't know what was fact and what was fiction. All of a sudden, it wasn't Geck that killed the victims. It was another man named Andrew Cocorales, his girlfriend's brother. The only thing is, he didn't know much about Andrew to give them any substantial details. Detectives asked him about Andrew, and he admitted that he knew the man. In fact, he even gave them asked Geck about Andrew. Excuse me. He gave them Andrew's address. As he wrote the information down, they look, They took notice that he still didn't seem phased by their questions one bit. Although he admitted to knowing who Andrew was and where he lived, he didn't know anything about what Spritzer was telling them. Then, the authorities were so baffled by what was happening in their interrogation rooms, as they drove into Andrew's house, they engaged in a debate with each other. Was it even possible for three grown men to work together to commit several vicious murders? Little did they know, they had barely scratched the surface. They didn't have to question Andrew very long before he gave them a full confession. He gave them explicit details regarding how they had all abducted women, sexually assaulted them, and used various sharp objects to stab them. Objects such as razor blades, can openers, knives, and lids from tin cans. Dude, this is William Barnon, but yeah. fucking straight people. Yeah. Like, without the gay aspect of it. Yeah, because um, okay, those I, are everything he used. And plus... The van, because mm-hmm. he had a white van, and they got a red Ford Econoline yeah. van. Well, they had a red Dodge. He had a Ford. Yeah. Yeah. So, same, same. Mm-hmm. It's fucking same, same, man. This is, they are the Chicago version yeah. of William Bonin's crew. That's what yeah. the fuck they are. Yeah. He even told them how they used a piano wire as a garrote to remove either one or both of the victim's breasts. Once the breasts were severed from the bodies, the men would masturbate until they reached orgasm to ejaculate on the body parts. By the time Andrew was done talking, he unintentionally admitted to being involved in the murders of approximately 18 women. According to his statement, he was directly involved with the deaths of two, Rose Davis and Lori Borowski. In Andrew's confession, he gave the detectives explicit details of Sandra Delaware's assault and what part he played in it. 
in order to prevent her from screaming while she was being assaulted, he took a rock and shoved it down into her throat. Then he grabbed a wine bottle and used it as a phallic object to sexually assault her, which caused a great deal of bleeding. After that, she was stabbed with a knife, and his statements were corroborated by the coroner's autopsy reports. God, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Like, for real, what the fuck? Yes. You sure this shouldn't have been on a Friday episode? Well, only because it's four people. That's why I featured her on so Tuesday. This is so though. Jeez, and Very, gross. All of like, them don't are. Don't get me wrong. You know I love the fetish killers. That's, that's, oh, yeah. that's my thing, but this is... God, this is disgusting fuck? and so... I mean, and I'll get into the occult angle next week, but as Andrew Spritzer and Geck were being interrogated by the authorities, a group of detectives began questioning the relatives and known acquaintances of the three men. They wanted to get an idea of what type of men they were. What they learned from people was shocking. Apparently, it wasn't a well-kept secret that Get had an odd fetish with women's breasts. Now, this you're gonna—I mean, you're gonna understand that nothing punctual- odd. Trust me, because like my girl- no, I- hold on, because my girlfriend has ginormous, and I just—I thought she was a double or triple D. No, she's a she's a G, uh, like a double or something like that. G. She's got ginormous boobs. I have a fetish with ginormous. But Dude, I, my mouth just dropped. I have a fetish with all boobs. Like seriously, like I got friends who go. I like girls with big tits. Dude, I like all boobs. Small ones are great. Large ones are great. As long as, and here's my caveat, they're natural. Yes. If you got fake boobs, just yes. pass me on by. But Not, see, interested. Not interested. I get into boobs. why his fetish is particularly odd. According to the statements law enforcement officials gathered, he often asked the women if they would let him use pins to stab them in their breasts. So what? that explains the puncture wounds on that chick, right? The f- yeah, what? he would take. Oh wait, it gets worse. I'll t- I'll get into something next week. But yeah, reports also indicate that what he forced his wife to endure was even worse. Some of the wounds he inflicted on her became infected. However, no matter what he did, she never called the authorities. She was scared to death of him. Jesus it was Christ, man! While they were questioning Andrew's dim-witted brother, that's their words, not mine. Thomas that they got another surprising confession. When they first started asking Thomas some general questions, they noted he was asking a little strange. They began to get the impression that he too was involved in the crimes. It wasn't much longer before he completely admitted his involvement. When Thomas gave his confession, he gave them even more horrific details about what happened during their murder spree, which I will get into next week. But yeah, isn't this, like, very convoluted so far? I'm trying to process all this information. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You're go- I mean, next week it gets you a little even Why more bizarre. Why hurt the boobies? That's what I'm thinking. Because, like, uh, fucking, god damn. Yeah, he did more than want to put pins in them. Yeah, Let's just he, say that. I like the boobies. Like, I like to play with them. I talk to them. Sometimes oh, I slap myself in god. the head with them. You know? Why hurt them? Don't hurt the... This is my new PSA. Don't hurt the boobies. Don't hurt the boobies, boys and girls. Be nice to the boobies. You're so fucking weird. Hey, I'm not weird. I love boobies. They're wonderful. Now that our entire audience knows that. <laughs> yeah, so, true. This, this one time my girlfriend had a strap on. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he is absolutely infatuated with sex, period. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I am. It's, like got, you know, yeah. Yeah. All right, remember, you can send us an email, and I'm sure I'm going to get some hate mail 
at Vernal Nation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website, www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs, just type in at Brutal Nation, and we'll pop right up. Get the full story without any of my bullshit. We also have a YouTube channel. Check that out. It, uh, it's got a little slideshow for you. You know, that's very... It's very, uh, yeah, anyway, check it out. Jesus, yeah. my brain's not working. I'm thinking about hurting boobies. Check Just it out. Me. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. We will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.